Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. Okay, well, welcome in, everyone. Um, Today is Tuesday, and it's an unusual day for us here at Apex Events at Southern Utah University, but we're so excited because it is one of the best events of the year on our campus. Uh, Today is our Festival of Excellence, and so for any of you who have been listening, you heard us promoting and talking about it uh, a couple weeks ago, but what today is on our campus is a, a day where all students are encouraged to attend the Festival of Excellence. What is the Festival of Excellence? It is a day-long festival that celebrates all areas of scholarship from our students, our faculty, our staff, you name it. There's everything from science to the arts to English to everything going on. So we're so excited to be a part of it. And it's also an Apex Day. And as is usual, we are honored to have our guest in the house today. And I'm can't wait to continue the conversation. So without further ado, I'd like to say welcome to Paul Zach. Thank you, Lynn. It's so great to have you here. And I just can't wait to talk about all the things that you've been studying and to get your to tell everybody about your book. Um, But the first thing I'd like to start with is can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do now? And then maybe we can get into your background of how you got there. Okay. Um, I wear several hats, like like many people. Um, I'm a professor at Claremont Graduate University in Southern California, and I'm in economic sciences, psychology, and management. So what the heck is the deal with that? I helped start this field called neuroeconomics and some associate fields, neuromarketing, neuromanagement. Um, so I run a behavioral neuroscience lab that tries to use neuroscience to solve problems in different human disciplines. Yeah, it just sounds like such fun to research the science of how we all interact and how we behave and how to make things better. How did you get started? I read somewhere that maybe your your mom and that she had a, a background in the church and that that led to kind of how you came to where you are. Is that true? You've been stalking me. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So um I'm fascinated by humans. I think I'm, sometimes I think I'm a Martian, that I don't really understand human beings because I have to study them. I don't have a natural inclination for what they're doing. I think it's like like great comedians are always kind of outsiders, right? I feel like I'm a bit of an outsider to a human. Wow. Uh, so I really want to run experiments and allow data and science to kind of inform rather than develop my own opinions because may, I don't, maybe I'll trust myself or whatever. Um, yeah. So um, one of the things we worked a lot on is, is pro-social behaviors. We call moral behaviors. Moral doesn't have any religious connotation. It just means good behaviors, yeah. virtuous behaviors, being nice to people, being trustworthy, being honest. Those are moral behaviors. And, uh, and uh, yeah, my mom was a former Catholic nun. And so as a kid growing up, we had these, you know, she and she was very strict on every sense, yeah. you know, like, uh, f- 
follow exactly what the church says. And if you drive by a Catholic church, you had to make the sign of the cross. I mean, it was like deep, you know, yeah. Catholic knowledge. And at some point, I just said, like, this just seems like too much. Like, if I read the Bible, it looks like love everybody, New Testament in particular, love everybody, just be a good person. You're covered. Everything's good. Mm-hmm. And uh, she rejected that view. Like, you have to follow each of these rules very carefully. If you don't go to church every Sunday, you're going to go to hell. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, ah, that just doesn't seem like, like, that seems like a bunch of rules that the Catholic hierarchy put in place to control people as right. opposed to the major message of the New Testament, which is love. Yeah. Which is, which is radical. 2,000 years ago to say love your enemies was the most radical, crazy thing that a bunch of hippies did. Right. Right. That was insane. So- Anyway, at some point I started studying social behaviors and I started thinking about these these so-called moral behaviors and thought maybe we can find brain activity that tells us in experiments why behaviorally people tend to be very pro-social. They tend to be very cooperative. They tend to give money to charity. And they're not doing it because they think they're going into heaven because these are atheistic college students by and large. Yeah. So could we find you know mechanisms that tell us about that? So my first book was called The Moral Molecule. And it was about the discovery of this brain chemical oxytocin Discovery is too strong a word. Um, I found a new, uh, a way to measure the acute production of oxytocin in humans. And by having this tool, we could ask all kinds of interesting questions about why humans, by and large, get along so well with each other. Mm-hmm. And um, and that sort of is a foundation for support some views in, in moral philosophy, uh, particularly a view of uh, it's called a sentimentalist view that comes from Adam Smith and theory of moral sentiments that we don't have to think in advance what's right and wrong. We have a feeling. Mm-hmm. We're getting feedback from other humans. And if I do something that hurts you, if I have any ounce of empathy, I'm going to feel bad, mm-hmm. right? Unless it was a psychopath or I'm, you know, mentally ill in some way. And so because I don't want to hurt other people because I'm a social creature and I have empathy, um, I tend to behave well most of the time. And most of the time is where the rubber hits the road. And we ran, ran a lot of experiments for many, many years and millions of dollars worth of research funding to figure out what are those conditionalities, right? When do I actually get bad behavior? Am I a bad person? Am I having a bad day? Is there a difference between those neurologically? And then finally put this into a kind of a general theory of, um, you know, like this sort of science of good and evil. It's just, I have so many questions. It's so fascinating. I, did you feel early on, I mean, you, you sort of had this model that you were looking at with the rules and your mom. Did you start to get into the science early or did the science come in as as a way to address those thoughts yeah i mean you know looking back now i think a lot of this was influenced by my mom but at the time going forward you don't really know what these influences are um yeah so my undergraduate degrees were in uh, mathematical mathematical biology and in economics and i did phd in economics and then postgraduate training in in um, neuroscience and somehow I just thought if I use the tools of biology and neuroscience, I could be a better predictor of what the humans are doing. And particularly in economics, um, social behaviors that fall into a, uh, a discipline called game theory or strategic decisions, those models really suck. That's a technical <laughs> term. Uh, those models really suck. They just don't predict well. And right. so, um, you know, spending time in the labs of, of Nobel Prize winners, they just couldn't tell me. They're like, no, we have no idea. And so... What happens is you you kind of get, like for the listeners, you get this sort of Copernican approach, which is like, I'll add in more stuff, like epicycles is what Copernicus did. Um, anyway, so I'll just add in more stuff and eventually I'll explain everything. Well, you're assuming away the problem. That's not a, right. so we have to look at mechanism and the mechanism of human behavior is not from your elbow or from your knee, it's from your brain. So, um, and luckily I had enough, uh, you know, of a background in, in biology and neuroscience that I could begin running my own experiments and, um, um, and yeah, the, the oxytocin stuff was 
really unstudied. So it was just open territory. So if I found anything, it would be interesting. And so anyway, the part of the thing is sort of tool development and, and kind of sniffing out what I think are interesting problems. Mm-hmm. And then other people apparently started finding these interesting too. And then just doing a ton of work to, to get to 50, 100 publications before you can write a book, right? Yeah. So, and I'm skeptical. So, you know, all, all scientists are born skeptics. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a number one skeptical of myself, uh-huh. right? So I don't want to think that if I design an experiment, um, that's the end, be all and end all. It's got to be replicated. It's got to be done a different way. So we just finished the keynote talk for Apex, and I showed a film of the experiment we've done in Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, if we're, if we're testing healthy, educated Western people, maybe those brains are different. We don't know. Let's Let's go, you know, as far away from that as we can. Um, let's go into psychiatric populations. We just finished a study studying criminal psychopaths um, in a prison. I mean, really hard to do. And let's really understand where things are coming from and what causes what. Oh, wow. Well, I want to ask you about all of those. And um, how did, I mean, oxytocin is something that we know much more about now, as you were saying, when you first started getting into it, how did that pathway reveal itself to you? Was it just kind of an aha moment? Or did you sort of say like, I don't know, there might be something here. I'm just curious about that discovery. There's a good story there. All so, right. Um, some of the work I've done, as you've sort of figured out, uh, kind of falls into the law and neuroscience area. So I go to these kind of law and neuroscience conferences. And one of those I went to every year was in the Sierra Nevada mountains in the summer because academics are always poor. And so they do it's a ski resort in the summer is cheap for a mm-hmm. conference. And, you know, you fly into Reno and you have this hour long shuttle ride to the resort and everyone in there, there's like a mountain biker except me and another nice, well, well-dressed uh, middle-aged woman <laughs> who I figured she's at my conference. So yeah. I said hi to her. Her name was Helen Fisher. She's a very well-known anthropologist. Uh, she wrote a wonderful book called The Anatomy of Sex. Uh, she's she's an expert on relationships. And all, I'm working on lots of things at once. And so um, I was also working on parental investments in children. Like, why do we spend so much time getting violin lessons and percussion lessons? Mm-hmm. And, you know, why do we why do we even care? I mean, genetically, I know why we have an investment biologically, but why do people spend, you know, huge amounts of money to get their kids in the school in Manhattan that's, you know, $50,000 a year because they're going to get into Yale if they go there? It seems like overkill in a way. So anyway, I was working on this and, and Helen Fisher said, oh, have you heard about oxytocin? This is for bonding chemical in mammals. I said, no, never heard of it. And so I went back to my uh, hotel room, went to the resort and I went on uh, the NIH has this uh, database this is pre-google scholar olden uh, days yeah uh and it basically have all the published literature in in medicine and and biology and I started looking up all the animal literature on oxytocin and yeah in animals you know this thing was all about recognition and and safety and i thought gee i'm also working on trust and why we trust strangers which is a, a really unusual thing that basically only humans do trusting strangers is really risky right mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. And so I made the leap from, oh, this is will tell me about investments in children to, oh, by the way, I'm also working on trust. This could be a mechanism. And the problem here is, how do you measure this in animals? You drill a hole in the skull and you sample that brain fluid with a needle. And I'm not an expert on humans, but I'm guessing humans aren't going to be so keen on that approach. (laughs) So we had to develop another way to measure this very short-acting neurochemical. And that hadn't been done. So once we had kind of worked out that tool, and it really mean we... It was me and one graduate student. So right. basically, I was a pin cushion <laughs> for a long time. Yeah. So we, we did it basically with very rapid blood draws and some other techniques that we published. And so now we had a tool to say, hey, can I get the brain to stimulate oxytocin release? And if so, does it have any behavioral effect at all? We started running experiments at a shared lab with 
borrowed equipment and scamming money off my colleagues who had grants to pay participants. <laughs> and indeed, we, you know, we, and we ran this study for about a year and a half before we published it because no one would believe that oxytocin did anything other than contract the uterus during birth and push out breast milk to feed babies. So, right. And so anyway, that's what we found. And then, you know, we were very, you know, feel very blessed. I got money from the John uh, Templeton Foundation, about a million dollars after the first publications to show, to really develop this whole uh, area. And in conclusion, that tells us actually why we connect to people so so easily. I was, as I told you before, I was talking to a student outside the studio and talking to you about being an SUU and building a family here, right? Feeling like there are people that care and love him. And I thought, isn't that a wonderful thing? How easily we can form friendships, not only romantic relationships, all kinds of important relationships in our lives because we have this essentially overactive oxytocin system that releases when we meet people that we are connected to. So when we first met, like you're a sweetheart, like you're <laughs> awesome. And so big oxytocin release, right? Yeah. And so, you know, we're super comfortable with each other. I gave you a hug earlier. Like it's not creepy. I'm not, right. a, I'm not a stalker. It's just, I'm just feel very, very comfortable around you. And so that's really amazing. Again, other animals that we share a lot of genes with, like chimpanzees, do not do that. Yeah. Right. Either yeah. I'm, you know, if you're another male, I'm going to have a fight with you. If you're another female, I'm going to try to, you know, mm -hmm. mate with you. So yeah. um, that's it. There's no friendships. Yeah. Right. So there's some family relationships, but yeah. basically there's no friendships. Well, oxytocin originally was thought, as you just mentioned, to be just a female molecule or a, mm. present in women. But what part of what your study found is that, no, no, this is absolutely something that, that we all have and, and we can really capitalize on. So that's exciting. Well, Another, it, can um, I tell you a quick story about please, that? We have, we have yes, 30 seconds. So absolutely. when I started doing this work, because I'm skeptical of myself, and uh, I spent a lot of time in medical schools. My wife's a physician. And so I'd go to all these medical conferences and I would talk to like the OBGYNs who should know about oxytocin. And I said, here's my idea. And I wanted to look at trust and try in interacting with strangers. And this uh, dude, it's always a guy, said, <laughs> you know, it can't be very important because it's just for women. I said, yeah, but men's brains make it too. There must be a reason why. The brain doesn't produce neurochemicals that are not useful. Yeah. And he goes, oh, you know, it's like nipples. They're just, it's, just, it's just vestigial. <laughs> And I'm like, what an ass. <laughs> Sorry, I use a it's okay. word. Um, you know, so, but I said, okay, I might be wrong, but I can be testably wrong. I think mm -hmm. I can design an experiment to see if men and women have a stimulus that causes the brain to make this this chemical. And if so, if that chemical predicts the kind of behavior, subsequent behavior we'll see. So, um, so what, do you, what do we learn from this? I'm a stubborn bastard. <laughs> Well, that's great. You're giving us such great information from that stubbornness, so we'll take it anytime. It's already time for our first break, um, and uh, we are in the studio with Paul Zak, and we're going to get back and talk about his most recent book, The Trust Factor, um, which we spent a lot of time with today, and we've been um, devouring on campus, which is about building high-trust organizations, so stay tuned for that. Uh, in the meantime, I've got a few songs for you, as usual. The first song I've got, I'm still on this uh, South by Southwest kick from some of these new bands. Um, this uh, song is called The Spot, um, and the band is Your Smith. You're listening to KSEU Thunder 91.1. <laughs> Thank you. 
that summer when he let me go again I tried a couple things, kept my distance, spread my wings, tried other men And I could have told you I was on the wrong side of what was ever gonna work again Gotta get you off my mind so I'm driving up the five to stay alive till Jefferson back everyone we are back here at the apex hour ksu thunder 91.1 that song was called the spot uh and the band is called your smith um i am joined in the studio with author public speaker neuroscientist neuroeconomics expert paul zach welcome back thank you i'd love to get into talking about your book we we spent a little bit of the last break talking about your study of oxytocin and now i'd like to talk about some of the principles that you bring 
out in the book, The Trust Factor, Mm -hmm. which I completely devoured. I've been telling everybody one of the things, um, so many, many people know I'm a musician and, you know, we work as freelancers. We often don't have a team or business until we become a part of something else. And in the last 10 years, I've now been a part of this university community. And so I think about teams and organizations in a much larger format. And one of the things that is, is just amazing is how you build trust and how you build that power in an organization where everybody feels a part of it. They want to work for it. They're excited about it. And so this book, I mean, I think everybody should read it. It's just amazing. So tell us about the trust factor. Thank you. What a great setup. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it applies to, uh, you know, teams, applies to families. Yeah. Uh, I've been tempted to write a book about family relationships as well. Yeah. But, you know, certainly to any organization, for-profit, non-profit, government, um, we were, we're working around people that we know moderately well, sometimes not that well, sometimes well. You know, how do we work effectively together? And and that set of behaviors that people um, sort of intuitively display in an organization, we can call that a culture, organizational culture. As I said in my talk, it's culture is just a too big of a word to, to really get a handle on, even though it's kind of a key word or an important word in, in business. No one really has a way to measure it very well, in my opinion. Um, and I want to get away from self-report, right? If I send you a survey, do you like your boss? I don't know. What day of the week is it? Exactly. Like, how much do I love my wife today? Well, depends on what she talked to me about last night. Were right. We having a fight or were we, you know, kissing? So anyway, um, I, I privilege neurologic data over self-report data extremely. I just mm. think the brain doesn't lie. And people lie because they don't know. You know, it's very hard to accurately relate your unconscious emotional experience so when companies started coming to my lab asking for help building high trust cultures, you know, my first approach was, you know, let's do some science on that. And some companies let me do that, which is amazing. Um, take blood from their employees and measure brain activity and videotape them solving problems in groups. And then from that, we designed experiments to run in my lab where we just spent time um, in the very, uh, not to be sort of too uh, philosophy of science here, but in the very Francis Bacon approach, mm-hmm. we want to rule out alternative explanations for the behaviors we see and use the neurologic signals to inform us into what's causing what. Um, So we did that for about eight years. um, And then um, we developed a survey that lets us measure organizational trust and its foundations and then created interventions where we can now go in and improve trust in as little as three months in organizations and improve outcomes. And so it's been a great journey uh, to to really be a kind of a useful human as opposed to just kind of just doing basic research to really mm-hmm. focus on a hard problem, which is what are, what are organizations that are performed, but also what does work suck sometimes? Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, um, most people listening probably have had a sucky job mm-hmm. because your boss was not very nice or they were just disorganized or they gave you too much to do or too little to do. Or So how do we figure that out? And I think taking a scientific approach to this and just thinking about just getting better as opposed to some kind of optimal, here's the best way to do everything. Let's just get lots of feedback and just learn from our mistakes and just try to slowly get better and better. But do that in a way that empowers individuals who are doing the work to feel appreciated, to feel successful, to give a, have a chance to grow and to recognize that we're all imperfect because we're humans. You're not going to perform perfectly every day. Even you, a professional percussionist, 
Once in a while, you have a little flub, and what happens? You keep going, right? That's that's the key. <laughs> More than once a while. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, if if you've done it enough, you know how to how, how exactly. to move around that little mm-hmm. area. You don't stop. You don't do a Tanya Harding right. and say, "Can I start over, please?" Right. You, you work through it, right? And then and then you maybe think about it, like, "Hey, what happened there? I lost my concentration." I um, and talk to the team to get some feedback. Hey, you know what? You came in a little late on this beat, and that caused me to come in a little late, and now we kind of had a problem. So. I just think it's it's very humble. I think science is a very humble approach to trying to figure things out to get better. And if you take the scientific approach, then it's not a he said, she said. It's not like I'm blaming you. Let's just get some data and see if we can get better at this thing. That's one of the things that really impressed me about the book. Uh, you know, there there are so many books out there that talk about this is how to make your organization better. This is how to make your life better. This is how to make these things better. And they're not founded in scientific data. And so I think one of the things I really appreciated about about your approach is that is that it comes from scientific data. I mean, we get all kinds of um, surveys all the time, as you said, and and they're so um, wavy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They just don't have the concrete thing or they can be skewed depending on how you're trying to get your results and all sure. these kinds of things. So I really appreciate that about the book. Um, just to give everybody a little bit, I, we don't, I don't want to necessarily go through all of them, but if we could maybe focus on a couple of the, the key things, I know, um, you go through the oxytocin word and you have a, a, a model or a structure or, a, uh, some quality, uh, that you really identify. And I'd love to zero in on a couple of them, um, and uh, p- perhaps maybe even just the first two. I know ovation is the first one. I was wondering yeah. if you could talk a bit about that. Right. So one of the underlying themes of the book, um, first of all, is get the language right. I do not like the word worker, employee. I like teammate or colleague. Are we all working on the same thing if we're on a team? Exactly. So I don't want to have this hierarchy. I don't want to be a boss. I want to be a team member. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm a te- maybe I'm a team lead. Yeah, we need leaders, but I'm still on the team, right? right. So first, I'll get the language right, and number two, everyone is volunteering to do this thing, right? No one's forced to do this, mm-hmm. right? I mean, even if you're in the military, at some point you can actually get out. I mean, right? So let's treat people like volunteers. And volunteers, you need to say please and thank you to them. That's a start. Mm-hmm. Holy crap! Now, like half the the economists listening to this had their heads explode, right? Like, <laughs> So, you know, the old view in economics and business was that work sucks. I know that I'm going to pay you to do this sucky thing. But for many of us now who are knowledge workers, which is I think most of us, we love with you. You love what you do. Mm-hmm. I can tell because you light up when you talk about it. Yeah, you get paid and because you got to go somewhere and you got to practice and there's reasons to get compensated, but you're bringing a lot of joy to your audience um, when you perform. And so the same thing at work. We can have a lot of joy at work, but we've got to empower individuals to to be successful. And one way to do that is what I call ovation, which is to recognize people who give extra effort to publicly um, thank uh, in a very personal way, highest performers. And then you, when you do this publicly, you set um, aspirations for the rest of the team because as social creatures, we want to be part of a community. If our community says we super value the lens who are, who are super diligent in what they do and perform at the highest levels, then the Bobs and the Sue's, you know, implicitly, most of us go, gosh, I'd like to be recognized. I think I'm going to work a little harder. So now we're setting standards in which you don't have to work hard. I mean, I could fire you at some level, but, you know, you can just kind of do them in or you can really knock it out of the park. So let's give you a chance to do that. And when you do, recognize that, discuss it, talk about how you did it, share that information, and now begin to change the way people view 
work and their work colleagues. And, and colleagues is the key that we're doing this as a group and humans basically anatomically are designed to work in groups. Our brains are very unique in that we like being in the groups, give us a job, give us a goal and put us around people that we want to work with and we will grind it out. Right. So how do I create that team that just wants to grind it out? And that's not the, the group aspect is not just in the corporate world. I, I know one of the studies that you did that you shared with us this morning was your time in Papua New Guinea studying group dynamics. And I wonder if you could share a little bit about what you found. I mean, it seems like groups are groups no matter where you are. Yeah, I think that was the most audacious organizational neuroscience experiment ever run to go to the rainforest <laughs> of Papua New Guinea and, uh, you know, all it, there's this acronym from, uh, from the World War II called FUBAR. <laughs> if you don't know what it is, look it up. I won't say the words, but it was a FUBAR experiment. Like <laughs> other than someone getting injured or killed, like almost everything happened. Actually, I got hurt, but anyway, <laughs> stuff went down, let's say. Yeah. And, uh, and we had to work all around that. But yeah, we found that even, uh, groups of Papua New Guineans living in the rainforest without running water, without electricity, without running water, the same brain mechanisms that we see that are active when uh, these Papua New Guineans do um, group work for their community are active um, in Western Europe, are active in students, are active in children. Um, so it's the same mechanism. So that gives us confidence that we can generalize the findings into organizations that we all find ourselves in. Again, going from families to school to uh, sports teams. Uh, we we work with rugby teams. Or, you know, like First of all, best blood draws ever did a lot of blood draws. So, you know, <laughs> rugby players, they have these veins like pipes. I could do <laughs> blind blood draws on these guys. So, you know, we really beat that the crap out of this topic to really understand it because I'm allergic to sloppiness. <sighs> Because of my mom, oh. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just I think there's no place in science for sloppiness, and mm -hmm. so we want to make sure that this study really, really holds water. But now having to work with you know, ten thousand, fifty thousand person organizations and roll out um, changes in the way people interact with each other that have a positive impact on thousands of people's lives mm -hmm. and improve their organization's performance, man, what a great space I'm in that I get to actually help people be happier in those eight plus hours per day that you spend working. And some of the action items, I mean, I remember in the, the video today, I, one of the things you mentioned is this, that group, the, the, the tribe, the group in Papua New Guinea, they, they, they collect together before a group activity. And I think that's one of the things that you also train is, uh, the daily interaction, the, the powwow, if you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you talk about that strategy and some other simple strategies to maybe develop some small things in, in our organizations to to develop this trust. Sure, I, I this is not unique to me, but I love the five minute stand up daily huddle. So first thing in the morning, get your team together and let's just talk about priorities. When you see really effective organizations, uh, I mentioned I work with a container store, which is a really wonderfully one run company. Um, when I've been with them, they will actually put their arms around each other for their daily huddle. They will literally, like a sports team, they will That's touch amazing. each other and talk about, look, goals are today, are these things. We got a sale in aisle seven. We want to help people. And um, uh, it gives you confidence they do that. And they do an ending of the day huddle too. So they get together and they just do a quick debrief. So again, they do a lot of work with the military. The military does the same thing. After every um, you know practiced interaction – um, and actually real interactions as well, but I trained with them. Um, they stop the action. They go, okay, let's do debrief. Three things we did right, three things we did wrong. 
and everyone gets to contribute no matter how junior you are, whatever weirdo professor who's helping out can contribute to. Let's just try to learn from this now, right now, before mm-hmm. we wait six months to talk about, hey, Lynn doesn't seem like she's uh, selling enough widgets. Right. What the hell? Right. Like, okay, why are you having trouble selling widgets? Oh, you know what I do? I do this, blah, blah, blah. Show me the widget, hold it up, whatever that right. is. Right, so it's really got to be immediate, and that's right out of the neuroscience that the brain builds these feedback loops, but you've got to do it pretty much immediately. You've got to, um, for our science listeners, the term of art in neuroscience is um, long-term potentiation. So you have to potentiate this pathway. You have to use it intensively enough or a short period of time where you change the sort of bias in the way the brain activates. And so how do we do that in organizations? The same way we do it in music. We practice, practice, mm-hmm. practice, 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 and get feedback. Yeah. So if you, you're a pro now, but if you, in the beginning, when you were a student learning percussion, you had a, a lot of teachers give you feedback and a lot of colleagues give you feedback. Oh, yeah. Right? It's a, now you're a professional. You really probably can critique yourself. But, but still but seek it you, out. Yeah. Get, get some feedback. Mm-hmm. How's this working for you? Right? So we can do the same thing in organizations and we should be secure enough. We should be, we should trust the people around us enough that we can get honest feedback just to get better and and to give honest feedback and do that in a caring way, mm-hmm. right? Not to like, Lynn sucks because she always hits the first beat, you know. Right. No, say, you know what, Lynn, it looks like you're a little off. You know, how can we, how do we, we work around this so the music really, really, you know, is perfect. I want to get better. Yeah. So I have a simple goal in life, by the way. I'll share this with you because yeah. she's so nice. I just want to be slightly less stupid over time, right? That's a really modest goal. I'm not sure I'm reaching it, but, you know, I think that's a reasonable goal. Like yeah. just trying to learn a little bit to get a little bit better mm-hmm. and help the people around you get a little better. So I love that. Well, it's time for our next musical break. Yay. Um, this song is a, a band called American Football. Some of you may know, and it's a newer song by them. And it's a song called Uncomfortably Young. Uh, uncomfortably numb, excuse me. Might be good if it was uncomfortably young, but it's uncomfortably numb. Thanks for listening. This is KSU Thunder 
Well, welcome back, everyone. This is the Apex Hour, KSU Thunder 91.1. That was the band American Football. The song was Uncomfortably Numb. I'd like to say welcome back to my guest, Paul Zak, author of The Moral Molecule and The Trust Factor. So welcome back. Thank you. We've been talking about all kinds of things about uh, human interaction and and especially based on your research and writing. And I'd love to get to one of the things, um, joy comes up so much uh, in in your talk today in the book. One of the things I, I loved, if you could maybe expound on a little bit, is the difference between joy and happiness. Mm. And, you know, that's one of the things that um, for me as an educator, um, we really struggle with because I think the students... A lot of people have this idea that I should be happy. I should be happy all the time with what I'm doing. And I think one of the things that you articulate really well is this idea that 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 the joy of the challenge and and all of these aspects of the work then make you happy overall mm-hmm. over time. But it's it's not. Like, I am not happy every single day when I'm practicing music. Some days I don't want to practice. But the overall overarching uh, entity is that I love playing music. So I wonder if you could comment on on that at all. It's a great question. And there are really distinct differences between happiness, which is more of an acute state, and joy or satisfaction, which is more of a kind of long-term state. So let me illustrate with a story that there's difference between the two. Um, the first time I took my daughter skiing, she was maybe 11 or 12 years old and, um, I'm not a good skier. So I'm, you know, just coached her the same, you know, pizza, french fry thing. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so we're going, we're having a good day doing the baby slopes and then we have lunch and then we say, yeah, let's try the intermediate slope. Now what happens after lunch? There's some sun and we're in California and she gets some ice. Anyway, so she, we are the immediate slope. She's having trouble. She falls. It's a little icy. She scrapes her knuckles. They're bleeding. She gets to the bottom. She's crying. Yeah. I said, I want to go home. And I said, as a very good father, I said, no, you cannot go home until you do that hill one more time. Good for you. No, I'm not going to go home. I want to go home. I said, no, you can't do it. You got to do it one more time. Anyway, so finally, after some cajoling, I get her to go up there and she skied all the way down and she felt joy, right? She felt like I accomplished something that was really hard and I suffered to do it, literally. So that's the difference. So when we see at work is this sense of joy is um, um, that I've done something important with people that depend on me. That gives me the sense of pride, kind of ownership over what I've done. And I do like to go home and tell your roommate or your spouse or your parent, you know, I I was working today, honey. Oh, you know what? We had this nasty, hard problem. And, you know, we thought we'd never... I helped them figure it out. Like it was really cool. And like our client is super happy. And, you know, that's different than this kind of acute happiness. If you want happiness, you know, 
snore some cocaine or something. You'll be happy for 10 minutes, <laughs> right? So that's, that's a different response. That's a brain response, which is just, oof, this is super good. As opposed to really making a commitment to the people and the project. And that generates this long-term joy. And as you know, from the, from the talk and the book, joy is a very strong predictor of satisfaction at work. So we're satisfied when we accomplish something. Not we don't come in happy. So Sorry, one more example. So I worked a lot with Zappos, uh, zappos.com, a shoe and clothing place. Uh, amazing company. In fact, I take my class on tour there. We're going in about a week That's to go cool. on the Zappos tour at Las Vegas. So if you guys are in Las Vegas, you can go on the tour and check out their cool culture. Um, so that's how much I like them. Tony Shea, who started Zappos, wrote a book called Delivering Happiness, which is wonderful. I recommend it. But he was mistaken in the sense that he thinks that happy employees are more productive. And all the research shows the opposite. And I finally convinced Tony that, who's an acquaintance, uh, that, because uh, I'm a Zappos a lot, um, that it's the opposite. I'm a satisfied person. I enjoy what I'm doing when I've done something important. And that makes me acutely happy as well. But it's really that long-term satisfaction that I call joy, mm. right? So so I chose the word joy thoughtfully. I didn't, happiness is too confounding Satisfaction sounds sort of weird. It's too much used in survey. So mm-hmm. I just sort of reserve the word joy for this feeling of, yeah, I did something cool today. Mm-hmm. And if it's hard, it's important. Like when, you, when you're when you sore after a workout, right? That That's not happiness, but you feel like, okay. Or like for me, because I'm old, like when I do something hard, when I go hiking hard and I get hurt, I'm like, okay, I got bruised up today. That was awesome. I actually, I pushed the limits enough that I got hurt. Right. right. That's super cool to me. Yeah. Well, I love that you make that distinction. I mean, I in the musical realm, I talk about that all the time because this repetitive practice every day is what makes a craft like music. I mean, there are several others. That's what makes you good at something like that. But but it's not so students come in, they say, Well, I'm not I'm not happy practicing. Well, you're not gonna be happy practicing every day. You know, it's definitely something that's gonna take place over time. Um, and so I really appreciate that you make that distinction. Um, to follow up on that a little bit, um, a lot of the suggestions in the book are uh are great for everyone in every um aspect of the organization, but particularly for leaders. I was wondering, um, for anybody who's listening or any students that maybe saw the talk today who want to start um, building their trust from the bottom up, so to speak, um, from them right there. What what could people do if they want to find some of these um, these wonderful things in their life or start pursuing some of these things? How can they make a difference from, from sort of the bottom up rather than the top-down leadership? Any suggestions? That's a great uh, um, question. And um, there's lots of examples of the book of the bottom-up approach. So here's a simple thing that I try to do for every interaction and I'll do with you, dear Lynn, as well, which is to have the word service in your conversation. So I like to end conversations with, Lynn, how can it be of service to you? Right. So if you're of service to people, you become important and valuable and necessary, and you're helping out the humans. Right. Whether you're getting paid or not, it's not important. So I do want to offer that to you. We've had nice conversations at, you know, off air. I want to continue to be of service with you. We're connected by email. If I can help on stuff you're working on, let me know. You're in Southern California. I'm in Southern California. We talked about podcasts and radio shows and other kinds of things. So I don't know if I'm useful for that at all, but I'm certainly happy to listen and yeah. happy to try to connect you to people if I can or whatever. So, um, you know, service is a, is a very interesting 
um, approach. So I said in the talk that I think every organization at its core is about service to others, no matter what you're doing. That's why people are paying for this good or service. So let's get in that service mindset and then begin to serve others, particularly from a leadership perspective. I really think that this servant leader model is the most effective model from everything I've seen and read. So uh -huh. if you're a leader, your job is to, is to empower other people to be successful. It's not for you to, to look good and, and, you know, be a superstar. So for example, get rid of the $5,000 suits, dudes. Let's <laughs> get rid of it, right? So the, the guy who founded Costco, who just retired, who's a billionaire, by the way, he only took $100,000 a year in salary. Even his board said they paid him too little. He would wear the Costco white short sleeve shirt with a name tag with his name on it every day he went to work in the executive office. Do you love this guy? Do you want to work for this guy? Does he go and move boxes at the stores? Is he walking around talking to customers? Oh, yeah. Do they know he's a CEO? No. Well, that's awesome. Did he know how to run a company? Damn, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is so cool. Well, I love that. And I think um, I I've been sort of harping on this train of service or sense of purpose because of its ties to... Uh, building resilience. And, and one of the things we see in students is, is we're, we're concerned about, about resilience in students. And it seems that some of these things, developing your sense of service, developing your work ethic can really help develop your own resilience so that if you fall down the ski slope the first time, you, you can get up there and do it again. So mm -hmm. I'm really excited about those concepts. I'd love to start asking you a little bit about future projects. What are you working on now? Is there anything you can share with us that's exciting you in your research? I can. Um, we are working on the neuroscience of extraordinary experiences. Wow. So no one wants to go to a crappy concert. No one wants to see a crappy movie. No one wants a crappy romantic partner. We want the best, right? Yeah. yeah. The problem is the best is generally an unconscious emotional response to that experience or that movie or whatever it is. And so over about 10 years of research, parallel to the stuff we worked on in Trust Factor, we have identified neurologic signals that um, quantify second by second how good something is for you individually and allows us now to measure um, uh, in real time for any number of people who've developed technology so that we can actually go and on the fly improve something or certainly review an experience, a concert, um, a classroom, um, and, uh, and make it better. So, uh, we're heavily in the adult training space with a, a bunch of partners. We've created a technology company that rolls out this hardware and software. We're currently doing private uh, pilots in the K to 12 space. So school is highly variable. We all been in school for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. What about that teacher that just nails it and turns you on and you're excited about this topic? Other teachers, like my kids have been in public school forever, literally roll their eyes when the kids ask a question. Like my kids are smart, honestly. Mm -hmm. They ask a question, answer the, the goddamn question. I'm mm -hmm. tired of, mm -hmm. don't roll your eyes at me or my kid. Right. Answer the right. question, doofus, or, or get a different job. I'm right. just tired of it. So if I can measure that objectively and I say, look, this teaching method isn't working, let's do something different. And I can provide personalized feedback for each student. Hmm. What does this student need to really be immersed to absorb this material? What follow-up does he or she need as a, as a child or as an adult? And um, and working a lot in the entertainment industry, we work with most of the major movie studios, with uh, TV networks, so that we're helping them improve content so we don't get so many bombs mm -hmm. from Hollywood or from the network TV or, you know, they got to push back against Netflix and HBO and all these other places, right? So they have a big incentive now to yeah. try to 
create better content. And we just don't know. We're just kind of guessing. Hmm. So let's bring some science to that. And by the way, this is, this is a work that originally was funded um, by the U.S. government through the Department of Defense, hmm. which was teaching special forces soldiers how to use storytelling to be more persuasive. And by um, the, the intelligence community that's looking at things like terrorist recruiting videos, we did a lot of work with them to help understand what influences people to do terrible acts. Wow. So now we're back to my mom. Yeah, <laughs> it all comes full circle. It does. <laughs> well, that's exciting. I will look forward to to reading more about that as time goes on. Um, we just have a few minutes left, and I'd love to ask you a little bit about um, kind of not so much off topic, but but a little bit looser. Um, who inspires you? Do you have any writers or scientists that that or models that that have been your inspiration uh, in your studies or in your career? Such an unfair question. <laughs> um, I think uh, I'm I'm really interested in outliers and the in the the weirdos. The people don't don't follow the right paths. Um, there's a wonderful book uh, you may know uh, by Stephen Pressfield who wrote uh, The Legend of Bagger Vance and lots of other TV uh, movies. It's called The War of Art. Do you know this book? Oh yes, I know it well. Oh gosh, Fantastic. it is. It's the manual for doing what you think is going to change the world and. He talks about resistance, external and internal resistance to doing something new and novel. It is so inspirational, and I've read it many times and given it away many times. So, you know, we all have unique gifts, and, you know, you shouldn't be stubborn and stupid. You should listen to the world's telling you. And if it's if the world is not accepting what you're doing, do something different. Just, you know, you can pivot. But fight that resistance, fight, fight the, the naysayers and, and your internal naysayer. Yeah. Who are you to do something unique? Right. right. Lynn. Right. Right. So the critic, right? the critic, yeah, critic. you got to fight that mm-hmm. inner critic. And as Pressfield said, the inner critic never fights fair. <laughs> it's a dirty fighter. So you got to fight dirtier. You got to get up earlier. You got to work harder. Right. You got to be committed. You got to tell your friends what you're doing. You've got to, you know, lash yourself to the sails and sail past and yeah. make sure it happens. Um, and then, if you do that for five years, it doesn't work. You should try something new. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, uh, I'm fascinated by the outliers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, uh, that really inspires me. The people who knowingly or unknowingly did something really wacko <laughs> end up working out. My last question for you is one of my favorites. Uh, and, and it's something that we ask everyone. And it can be anything. And that is what's turning you on this week. And that can be, it could be a book, it could be a TV show, it could be a song, it could be an experience, it could be a food. Uh, it can be anything you like. But I'd like to ask you as our parting shot for the day, Paul Zach, what's turning you on this week? You're going to think this is pandering, but I'm going to tell <laughs> no. you. I have a very, very boring, boring life. I have <laughs> it doesn't kids. Sound like that. I work fourteen jobs. You know what turns me on today, this week? Utah. Ah. When I'm on the road, all kinds of crazy things happen to me. You have no idea. I met my wife on an airplane. That tells oh, you. That's so awesome. I meet the most amazing people like you, Lynn. I am. I'm just privileged to to be able to travel around the world and interact with people who seem to want to talk to me for some reason. <laughs> so I am so enamored of this place. Uh, this university has such great vibes. I ran into your president recently. I told him the same thing. Like, I'm happy here. Like this this has got some good energy. Like I don't know what you're doing, but 
it's kind of rocking the world. So Yay. it's rocking my world. I'm thrilled to be here. And everyone's been so nice. Even you, Lynn, have been nice Even to me. me. Shockingly. <laughs> I know. I'm not very nice. But every once in a while, a little yeah, bit. Bit of slip. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sharing uh, the book. The, there's, there's, a, there's several of them. But the two that we've been digging into, The Moral Molecule, which is a bit earlier, and then The Trust Factor by Paul Zak. Um, also, you can check out his website. And so his last name is Z-A-K. So, Paul Zach, um, thank you so much for joining me here today, and thanks for your time on campus. Absolutely. Thanks, Lynn. <laughs> All right. See you later, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU's Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.